You are listening to Killer. This is case number 32. Jennifer Dulos. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Jennifer Dulos, a 50-year-old mother of five from New Cannon, Connecticut, left the morning of May 24, 2019 to drop her children off at their private school, New Cannon Country School. The family arrived at the school in their black 2017 Chevrolet Suburban. The kids were dropped off and Jennifer departed from school around 8.05 a.m. She was scheduled to arrive for a doctor's appointment later that day in New York City, but she never showed up or called to cancel her appointment. New Cannon, Connecticut is located a little over an hour from New York City, along the East Coast. Jennifer's friends began to worry that they had not heard from her in over 10 hours and reported her missing. Jennifer was a graduate from Brown University, later earning a master's degree in writing from New York University Tisch School of Arts. She was a stay-at-home mother and also wrote a blog. Jennifer's husband, Fotis Dulos, also graduated from Brown University and earned an MBA in finance from Columbia Business School. Fotis worked as a luxury home developer. The couple married in 2004 and had five children. Jennifer and her husband Fotis Dulos were in the midst of a contentious divorce. Two years earlier in 2017, the pair separated and began the divorce process. The relationship turned toxic. At one point, Jennifer said that she was concerned about Fotis's irrational, unsafe, bullying, and controlling behavior. The couple continued fighting through court, Complaints with a mix of some minor and some serious. Immediately after filing for divorce, Jennifer sought an emergency custody order of the couple's five children. According to the court filing, she was afraid that Fotis Dulos may harm her or their children. Part of the claim also stated that she was afraid Mr. Dulos had threatened to kidnap their children and take them overseas. Fotis was born in Turkey and grew up in Greece, which is what made this claim have a little more substance. The couple had a bitter marriage, which started back in August 2004. They married in New York. Both Jennifer and Fotis attended Brown University in Rhode Island. He was one year her senior, graduating a year ahead of her. Following college, Jennifer moved back home to New York, where her parents lived. She co-founded a theater group in the early 1990s and also got her master's degree in writing from New York University's Tisch School of Arts. The couple relocated to Connecticut in 2004. Fotis and Jennifer had five children together between 2006 and 2010. They had two sets of twins and a fifth child. In 2011, she launched her own blog, writing about her family and her general daily life. In her blog, everything seemed normal and happy. One post described celebrating Father's Day, throwing a huge get-together of family and friends for Fotis. In 2012, the Dulos family moved to Farmington, Connecticut. During their time in Farmington, the family lived in a 15,000-square-foot home that Mr. Dulos's company had built. During this time, the couple's relationship began to sour, ultimately leading to their separation in 2017. In the court documents filed that year, Jennifer found out that Fotis had been having an extramarital affair with a woman named Michelle Traconis. It was eventually decided that Jennifer and the kids would relocate to her parents' home in Pound Ridge, New York. They also made plans to enroll their kids in a private school in New Cannon, which was about 75 miles from Farmington. Eventually, Jennifer rented a home in New Cannon. Court documents stated that Fotis would 
alternate between telling Jennifer their marriage was over and threatening to never let her get a divorce. Fotis also purchased a handgun, which made Jennifer uneasy. Fotis rebutted her statements by saying he never threatened her and intended to settle their divorce amicably. He also stated that he purchased a handgun to keep the family safe, with her knowledge. He also defended himself against a claim that he threatened to kidnap the children. He said that she was the one who kidnapped them, taking them to New Canaan without telling him. Continuing on, the couple traded insults back and forth through the court, saying things like Fotis called Jennifer a psychopath in front of their kids, or saying your father likes Farmington because he's not that smart. Successful people live in New Canaan. Fast forward back to May 2019. Jennifer was reported missing, and police began investigating immediately. In the following days after she disappeared, police found her SUV parked on a street near Waveney Park, which is a 300-acre plot in New Canaan. The police used helicopters, drones, and canine units in an effort to find Miss Dulos. While authorities worked to find Jennifer, Fotis continued his legal battle against her, submitting a petition to the court for custody of the five children. Jennifer's family released a statement following this petition stating, Please be assured that Jennifer's five children are safe and well cared for. According to police reports relating to the disappearance of Jennifer, her close friend, Lauren Almeida, called police to report Jennifer missing. Lauren worked as a nanny for Jennifer, and when she arrived at her home on May 24th, all she found was her handbag, but no sign of Jennifer. She began to worry and phoned the police immediately. Lauren also found it strange that when she went in to get more paper towels to clean up a mess in the home, there were only two rolls of paper towels, despite having placed a new 12-pack in that location the night prior. Police arrived that evening, and they found blood on Miss Dulos's Range Rover, which had been parked in her garage. Her other car, the one that was found near the park, was missing. Detectives determined that the blood belonged to Jennifer. They also found blood that was mixed with Fotis' DNA on a doorknob inside her home, as well as evidence of a cleanup at the scene, where authorities now had a reason to suspect that there was a violent encounter in her garage when she returned home from dropping her children off at school. Police wasted no time in pointing their energy at investigating Fotis. Fotis and Jennifer had been entrenched in a vicious divorce for nearly two years. Authorities used a search warrant to track Fotis's cell phone and found that they were pinging on cell towers nearly 75 miles away. Fotis and his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, were seen on video discarding several trash bags in Hartford, Connecticut, over a miles-long stretch along Albany Avenue. Authorities searched this area on May 31st. On June 1st, Fotis Dulos and Michelle Traconis are charged with hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. Following this charge, police immediately began searching the properties of Fotis Dulos, including his luxury home-building company, Four Group, Incorporated. On June 3rd, police find what would be called the alibi script. Police comb through trash waiting to be incinerated at the Materials Innovation and Recycling Authority in Hartford for three full weeks, while simultaneously searching West Hartford reservoirs and other properties connected to the family. On June 24th, Fotis's attorney alleges that Jennifer wrote a manuscript similar to the plot for Gone Girl. He implied that she could have orchestrated her own disappearance, faking her own murder to escape her troubled marriage. On July 25th, Jennifer's mother retains custody of their five children. On September 4th, Fotis is arrested and charged again with tampering with evidence. He is later released. On September 5th, Michelle Traconis turns herself in on the same charges and is also released. On January 7, 2020, 
The estranged husband of Jennifer Dulos was arrested along with his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, and his attorney and friend, Kent Mawani. Fotis was facing counts of murder, felony murder, and kidnapping in the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos on May 24, 2019. Michelle and Kent were facing charges of conspiracy to commit murder. Bail was set at $6 million for Fotis and $2 million for Traconis. In the arrest warrant, it alleged that Fotis killed his wife in her garage between 8.05 a.m. and 10.25 a.m. Then he tried to clean the scene with paper towels and other supplies from the home. It also detailed what was mentioned earlier. His cell phone data and video footage showed Fotis and Michelle acting in a form of cover-up. The pair were seen dumping black plastic bags filled with evidence and trash cans in Hartford, Connecticut. The evidence recovered was a blood-stained sponge, plastic zip ties, and what appeared to be cut clothing and undergarments with a blood-like substance. Authorities said that Traconis gave conflicting accounts of what she and Fotis were doing when Jennifer disappeared. Authorities also uncovered what they referred to as the alibi scripts in a trash bin outside of Fotis Dulos's business. The scripts contained hour-by-hour increments of what they did that day, excluding the trip to Hartford, according to the police. Kent Mawany was also mentioned in the scripts, and phone records showed that Fotis contacted Kent once the night before her disappearance, and again around the time that he was in Hartford. Police say when Kent was questioned, he initially denied having contact with Fotis, then stated that he did not remember. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Two days after being arrested, Fotis and Michelle both were released on bond. The 52-year-old Fotis Dulos was placed on house arrest following his release. On January 28th, Fotis Dulos hooked a hose up to the tailpipe of his car in the garage of his Farmington, Connecticut home. He then proceeded to poison himself with carbon monoxide. Authorities would find Dulos unresponsive in his car after receiving a call to check on his well-being as he was late for a court appearance. Police saw he was in medical distress forced entry into his vehicle, and and began performing CPR. He was airlifted to Jacoby Medical Center and pronounced dead two days later. It had been about 250 days since Jennifer went missing. Fotis had written a suicide letter that would be released by his attorney a few days later. The following is a letter left by Fotis Dulos dated January 28, 2020. All, if you are reading this, I am no more... I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. Enough is enough. If it takes my head to end this, so be it. I want it to be known that Michelle Traconis had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and neither did Kent Mawany. I asked the state to let them free of any such accusations. I also asked the state to stop harassing my friends. They are honorable people. Please let my children know that I love them. I want to do anything to be with them, but unfortunately, we all have our limits. The state will not rest until I rot in jail. My attorney can explain what happened with the bags on Albany Avenue. Everything else is a story fabricated by the law enforcement. I want to thank all my family and friends that stood by during this difficult time. I'm sorry for letting you down 
and not continuing the fight. Fotis. The case remains unsolved to this day. On August 11, 2020, the attorneys representing Fotis Dulos' estate are now petitioning the court to declare Jennifer dead. There is a retirement account with $194,000 in it. The estate law requires the money to go to his wife. The interesting thing that came of this filing is that the estate attorney, Christopher Hugg, mentioned that she was likely dismembered, but did not provide information to back up his claim. So now is the time where Craig and I are going to go through and break this down bit by bit. Um, So (laughs) let's start there at the end. So recently there was a court filing, and in it the attorney suggests that Jennifer was dismembered And nothing I had read or researched up to that point had made any suggestion of that. And that was kind of an interesting revelation. However, I mean, if you're following kind of the way that, like, Fotis was hiding things and doing things, it's not necessarily a stretch, but uh, I thought that was a little bit uh, interesting in the fact that, you know, it just kind of randomly comes out in this estate (laughs) fight, you know. Uh, What do you make of that? Yeah, definitely. And I'm not sure why the estate attorney would even mention the fact that she was dismembered. I mean, he's only representing uh, Fotis Dulos on on the fact or on the matter of his estate, the financial retirement account or whatever. So why would he throw out there that she must have been dismembered unless he's just speculating? Yeah, I think it may have to do. So they're petitioning to call her dead. And I'm guessing that it has to do with saying, like, essentially saying, like, you're never going to recover the body. So just do it now. So I don't know if this theory is just something they threw out there, you know, for the court's sake or or if they know a little more than what we know. But uh, I would I would have to assume that there's some level of confidence that that's the case. I don't think you throw out an accusation like that for somebody who's been, you know, missing for quite some time. You know, their family and friends are still around her children. Like, I don't think you just throw that one out there without having something to back that up. But if you do, you're extremely reckless and irresponsible. Right. And then what do you think of his letter? I've always been of the the thinking that if somebody is accused of doing something like this, killing somebody, dismembering them, doing whatever, doing something just really, really egregious, that when they submit a suicide letter, you know, vehemently stating that they had nothing to do with it, I kind of don't believe them. Oh, I don't believe them one bit. Like, what's really interesting here is he says in here, I had nothing in all caps to do to do with, right? To do with this. And when he says that, he then says, you know, basically, I'm going to kill myself, but I had nothing to do with this. But hey, um, you know, my friends, Michelle and Kent, they didn't have anything to do with this either. Well, okay, so if you had nothing to do with this, then how do you know that the other two had nothing to do with it, but then you're willing to kill yourself? If you truly had nothing to do with it, you wouldn't want to kill yourself over this, right? I would say no. I mean, if it's something that I didn't do, I would I would fight until the end. I mean, he he says that he's not going to spend another hour in jail rotting, but but still, rotting in jail until you can prove your innocence is a lot better than going out in a garage and sucking on the exhaust pipe. Well, and and this family was well-to-do, you know. They 
had a successful luxury home building business, multiple houses, multiple, you know, nice vehicles and things like that. And so it's not like he didn't have the means to put up a little bit of a legal fight for some period of time. You know, I don't know how, how much cash he had available to him and, you know, how many assets he wanted to sit there and liquidate to, to fight this. But if anybody had the ability, he did. So it's just interesting in the fact that he was willing to, you know, sacrifice his own life. But what that tells me is dude was guilty as hell. He just didn't want his girlfriend to get in trouble. So he decided to try and end it as quickly as possible, knowing that ultimately he was going to be found guilty and convicted. No, I 100% completely agree. And this was a completely new case to me. I hadn't read any of the details until we, we covered it this morning, but is there still an investigation open? Are they still looking into Michelle and Kent? Yeah, there's still, um, the investigation's still open. Michelle, uh, I believe she was due in court sometime over the summer, but she uh, was able to delay that appearance because of COVID-19. So she didn't have to go to court, but she's due back soon. And I saw like a latest update was, I think they're dropping a charge against her, but continuing another charge. Or that might only be actually, I'm sorry, I might be speaking out of turn here. It may be a condition of her of her current arrangements for like house arrest. I was just curious. I'll have to do some research on the side to see where, where things land. It still sounds like Michelle and or Kent could be in some serious trouble once they, once they get through the rest of the investigation and the trial or the court proceedings. Anyways, I don't think it's in a trial phase, but yeah, I, I completely agree with you saying that. Why wouldn't he have, if he truly believed he was innocent, why wouldn't he have fought a little harder to, you know, to clear his name and to clear his friend's names. It says that he posted bond and we know bond for himself was $6 million. So he obviously has some, he either has some serious equity on his side or people behind him that do that posted that $6 million. Yeah, absolutely. Another point that I wanted to break down and talk about here was, uh, so on June 24th, his attorney was alleging that she wrote a manuscript similar to the plot for Gone Girl, that <laughs> she faked her own death. I think that's kind of disgusting. I mean, this is a really serious thing right here. So whether or not, you know, I know you're defending this person, but like going with that defense, I feel like is really inappropriate. And that just to me, just, it didn't sit well. How'd you take that? Oh, I agree. It didn't set well. I mean, it's to me, it's a it's a cheap cop out to to try to divert the attention to to Jennifer and and get the eyes off of Fotis. I mean, it, it's a to me, it seems like a lazy attempt, in my opinion. It didn't sit well with me. You know, it, she's clearly missing. So to say she faked her own murder, she's got five kids and nothing about her life up to that point implied that she was, you know, ready to like leave her family. You know, she was having an issue with Fotis, but she didn't seem to be having any issues with her children. Now, obviously I'm limited on the amount of information that I have about her personal life, but you know, she was a blogger and she'd write about her life and that doesn't necessarily mean you're happy. You can fake those things, but at the same time, she really relocated with her family. You know, she was dropping the kids off at a private school you know, she was still engaged in their lives. It just seems obvious, you know, really strange that they would go with that. I, I don't know. That one didn't sit well with me. And 
if I was her family, I'd be pretty upset. Yeah, I agree. And, and so many other details that we talked about too. What I, I just don't get it when the, this family's obviously fairly wealthy, successful in the business industry, luxury home business, whatever they're doing. But then for Fotis to go out, they always make it sound like he didn't own any firearms. So just one day he decides to go out and buy a gun to protect his family. Protect his family from what? <laughs> Himself. Yeah, he gets into a this long, long drawn out divorce trial for two years and then he decides to buy a gun in the midst of things to protect his family. It's just, I mean, too many times you hear those pieces fall together in something like this and it's, it, it just stands out. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's like a mental thought, you know, process that he's going through, whether or not he's going to use a gun for anything vicious on his family or his ex-wife or whatever. You know, it's just that thought process odd that it, you know, inserts itself right here. But again, it could just be one of those details. Like I think you were kind of alluding to, we didn't hear anything about gun ownership prior to that. He could have owned guns before. We don't know. I don't know. I mean, let's just put it that way. He may have owned guns and he just liked guns. They conveniently slide that one, (laughs) slide that one into the narrative, you know, to make it look like he was more aggressive than he was because that stuff does definitely happen. You know, people do put their spin on things. So it's possible. So let's talk about the actual crime scene. So when Jennifer arrives home, she's, and this is all theoretical, right? Like the police haven't really released their detailed accounts of what they think happened. I mean, they have some stuff out there, but in theory, she arrives home after dropping the kids off at school and then is attacked by Fotis at her home. And they think it all happened in the garage. Now. What we don't know, based on the information I was able to come across, was how much blood evidence did they find in the garage? Because if, as they say uh, later, that they believe that she was dismembered, was she dismembered in her own garage? Was there that much blood? You know, like, what, what are we talking about here? Because, you know, blood evidence is very generic. You could have broke someone's nose and they bled you know, a decent amount, but not anything too crazy. Or you could have cut someone's head off and they bled out the whole body. You know, like, what are we talking about here? You know, how much blood is there? I mean, they make it seem like he just cleaned up with some paper towels and a sponge. But if there were, according to the nanny, if there were 12 rolls of paper towels and she comes in, there's only two. So it took 10 rolls of paper towels to clean up. That's a lot of freaking paper towels. Right. And I was thinking the same thing. Ten full rolls of paper towels to soak up blood. There's a lot of blood. And how much was left behind that the investigators found. It kind of sounded like a lazy cleanup to me because they immediately found blood and some of his DNA mixed with the blood in the garage. So, And and we know from other cases and investigations that you may have a huge mess of blood to clean up and these guys will do you know whatever they think is the best way to clean up a mess like that, but there's always stuff left behind. So yeah, it would be interesting to know how much blood evidence they found. The other thing that was strange is, you know, her SUV is found like by that park. So was he trying to distract and say like, Hey, she went to this park and she's missing. Like she went, went for a run and someone kidnapped her, you know, like was he trying to create an alibi for himself, you know, by creating a narrative with her saying like, oh, I wasn't there, you know, 
nothing, nothing happened with me. And her, her car was over there, you know, like she was doing something else. I found that to be a little strange. This things happened earlier this year in 2020 and Michelle's using COVID as a excuse to not show up for court. Yeah. That, that gets a meh for me. <laughs> yeah. Double meh. Yeah. So like, I just, it, it seems if you're just looking at just the 15,000 foot view of things that have happened, they're in a divorce battle. They separate. He seems, they seem pretty contentious in court. I'm not going to say he, they both do. And then, you know, she goes missing. They find blood evidence. And then coincidentally, right after that, he and Michelle are pinging on towers an hour away, dumping stuff in trash bins. So, you're pretty freaking guilty. I mean, the evidence is pointing right at you. The problem is they usually need to have a body. It's pretty hard to get a conviction without the body because, I mean, obviously she's gone. This seems pretty damning, but they can't prove they murdered her. I mean, they probably have more info that they haven't released that helps them make a better picture than what I can paint here. But at the same time, you know, everything's kind of pointed at him. Enough so that he felt enough pressure to to kill himself. Yeah, and, and in the end, ultimately, it's just a sad narrative because, in my opinion, he killed his wife, then was a coward, didn't want to face the music, and killed himself, yet tried to clear his friends on his way out. And what's the end result? You have five children now that are living with her parents. No, Both of their parents are gone. The court, the Dulos estate, they're they're squabbling over you know 194 grand in a retirement account. You know, doesn't really mention anything else about any any other details about his estate. I'm assuming that there's hopefully more that the children are entitled to when things are finally settled. Because, like I said, he pissed away six million dollars on bail. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so her family was pretty wealthy as well I believe and I, you know I think that's how she was able to also get some support you know moving to that school and you know that private school and renting out that pretty big house and everything like that and so it's just it's sad you know on many levels you know they have five kids and the two of them couldn't you know separate their own conflicts for the sake of the kids and you know now she's gone and hopefully they're able to find her, but I, th- I think at this point, if they haven't recovered her remains, they probably never will. Or if they do, it's going to be a really long time from now, and it'll just be, you know, they might find partial skeletal remains, like, scattered somewhere random, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a sad, sad story. I feel bad for the children, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all we have for you this week. Thanks for listening. And stay safe.